I will read in a moment from Matthew's biography, the 26th chapter. Matthew 26. Today, we celebrate a sacrifice, which is ironic to me, because more often than not, we don't put sacrifice and celebration together. When a law enforcement officer sacrifices their life for someone else's safety, we don't celebrate that sacrifice. We honor it and we remember it. It gives us cause to pause. We reflect, we revere it. When soldiers, men and women around the globe, pay the ultimate price and make the ultimate sacrifice for the cause of our freedoms, we don't celebrate that sacrifice. We honor it. We revere it. But this is different. The sacrifice that we celebrate today actually began way back in the Old Testament, and it began with celebration. Because as you will see in a moment, people who knew not freedom were made free. People who lived in bondage were redeemed. People who only knew oppression, suffering, celebrated their release. In Matthew chapter 26, we read of a memorial, but not just a memorial, a celebration. A celebration that took place or actually originally happened some 1,400 years before what we're about to read. In Matthew 26 and verse 17, Matthew records, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, that's another way of saying the Passover. This was an annual feast. It lasted a a week. It happens once a year in the springtime. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Now, the reason that's significant is because Jesus had no house in Jerusalem. You see, tens of thousands of pilgrims had traveled for days, weeks even, to descend upon the capital city of Israel, Jerusalem, once a year in celebration of Passover. It was customary for those who owned a home to help people from the outside find a place to eat this special celebratory meal. So his disciples say, where are we going to eat? Where do you want us to have the celebration? Verse 18, he replied, go into the city to a certain man. We don't know anything about this man. We don't know who hosted Jesus for Passover. Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel gives us a little more detail that this man would be carrying a water pitcher. And that was odd in those days because carrying water was woman's work in first century Jerusalem. So perhaps this man would be easy to spot because he'd be the only man carrying water. So they spot this gentleman and you're to say to him, verse 18, go into the city, a certain man, and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. It was just a matter of days and hours when Jesus would be arrested in the garden. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. Verse 19, so the disciples did as Jesus had directed them 
and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. Now, in spite of the video you just watched, it didn't look like that. (laughs) The table was probably large, but it had little short legs. It sat in the middle of an open room, and surrounding the table were pillows. You didn't sit at a chair and eat the meal like we would our Thanksgiving dinner. You reclined into those pillows, and you reached out and you took food from the table. The celebration could go on for hours. It was much, much less formal than our communion is today. That is largely by necessity. In fact, the first century church A meal always accompanied remembering the Lord's Supper. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I believe it is, the Apostle Paul warned the people, you're eating too much. You're becoming gluttons at the Lord's table. You're drinking too much. You're becoming drunks at the Lord's table. It was not until the modern church with the expansive auditoriums, you can't feed a thousand people a meal on a Sunday morning to remember the Lord's cup and the Lord's bread. Can't do it. So we've streamlined the process as you know it today. My appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover. Verse 19. When evening came, excuse me, verse 20. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. Jesus knew what was going to happen. And I find it remarkable that he was able to keep that information to himself. Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, but he never let the disciples in on it. That shows remarkable self-control and restraint on his part. It would have been so easy to let something slip. Hey. It would have been so easy to change the course of God's ordained plan, but he didn't. They were very sad. They began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Surely it's not me. Can you see Peter? Surely it's not me. Can you see John? Lord, surely it's not me. Even Matthew, the tax collector. Lord, surely it's not me. I wonder if Judas asked. Then he says, Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. Now, I don't know if that alone identified Judas as the traitor, because maybe Jesus gave Judas a seat of honor right next to him at the table, and they were sharing a bowl where they dipped their bread. Or maybe he was just restating what he had already said. One of you at the table, we've all dipped our bread, one of you will betray me. In the early church, as I indicated earlier, communion was far less formal. It was a big meal together. That's what Passover was in the days of Jesus. It was much more like a Thanksgiving meal. Family and gathering and celebration. But it began in the Old Testament with the Exodus. I'm going to turn back now to Exodus chapter 12. You probably know the story of the Exodus. If you don't know it by heart, you know the big points. You know the highlights. The story of Passover or the tradition of Passover began in Egypt of all places. It didn't begin in Jerusalem. It didn't begin with freedom. It began with bondage. You see, in the book of Exodus, we are 700 years removed 
from Abraham, the father of God's chosen people. 700 years. We're hundreds of years after Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph. And if you know the story of Joseph, Joseph, a Hebrew, an outsider, rose to a prominent political position in Egypt. In fact, he saved the nation during years of famine. But Joseph is long gone. The Hebrews are no longer respected in Exodus. In fact, for 400 years, they've lived in bondage. They're slaves. They're servants to the Egyptians. Every day, using brick and mortar, they construct and build temples to pagan gods. Palaces for the Pharaoh. You know, in Exodus chapter 2, God calls Moses at a burning bush. And Moses is intrigued that while the bush is on fire, it's not consumed. So he goes over to investigate and he hears from God Almighty, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses has been chosen to lead God's people out of their bondage and into their freedom. At first, Moses resists. I'm not worthy. I'm not capable. I'm slow of speech. How am I going to stand before Pharaoh? But that's exactly what he does. Moses stands before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the known world at that time. And perhaps with finger pointing or shaking fist says, this is what the Lord God of Abraham says, let my people go. Of course, Pharaoh isn't into that. Pharaoh says, absolutely not. And what follows are a series of 10 plagues on Egypt. You remember the frogs, you remember the water turned to blood. You remember the darkness, and the final plague is the plague of death. Read with me in Exodus 12 and verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. That's how significant Passover was going to be among God's people. They changed their calendar for it. It was the month of Abib. It's a spring month. We would call it March and early April. God told Moses, what's about to happen in Egypt is going to be so significant, and people are going to talk about this for so many centuries, I want you to change your calendar. Now, the calendar changed again at the end of the Babylonian captivity. When the nation returned to Jerusalem, they changed that month to Nisan. So effectively, Jews, even to this day, they function with two calendars. One is sort of secular, and one is sacred. It all began with Passover. Verse 3, tell the whole community of Israel. That's a big statement. You ought to underline that if you like to write in your Bible. That's the first time that statement's ever been used of God's nation. Let the whole community of Israel. Up until this point, they've been called sons of Israel or Hebrews. They've never been organized like they're about to be organized. The community of Israel points to the birth of God's nation. That's significant, and it happened at Passover. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. This is significant because God doesn't want there to be any leftovers. (laughs) And if there are leftovers, you're not supposed to save them and take them with you. 
God wants you to leave them behind because God is going to sustain his fledgling nation every day for the next several decades until they enter the promised land. Beginning in verse 5 and down through verse 12, God gives them very specific rules for how to handle Passover. What kind of lamb will be sacrificed? It could be a sheep or it could be a goat. Had to be one year old. We'll read it in a moment. He told them how to prepare it. They weren't to boil the meat. They had to fire roast the meat. In your Bible, very often, fire represents judgment. So in effect, in order for the people to find freedom from their bondage, this lamb would be judged by fire. The judgment that was poured out on the lamb, so to speak, would result in the freedom of God's people. He even told them, when you eat it, I want you to wear your shoes. Because when it's over, we're out of here. Look with me, verse 5. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. The idea here is that our best ought to be offered to God. By the way, if you haven't figured it out yet, the Old Testament Passover lamb is what we call a type of Jesus Christ. It's a foreshadowing of the spotless Son of God, the sinless Son of God, without blemish, who would make sacrifice for each of us. One-year-old lambs without defect. You may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Verse 7. Then they're to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That's rather strange, isn't it? You're going to slaughter this lamb and prepare to eat it with your family, but you're going to save some of the blood and you're going to smear it on the door jam for two reasons. One, this is an exercise of your faith and obedience to the one true God. But two, imagine, for centuries perhaps in Egypt, the pagans would walk past those homes and see the remnants of that blood and be taken back to a time when God did something amazing in keeping with his promise. By the time you get to verses 8 through 12, God explains what's about to take place. His angel of death is going to move throughout the camp and is going to strike down the firstborn of every family, even animals. But he's going to pass over the houses that display the blood. God has pronounced judgment on the gods of Egypt. Look at verse 13. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Hence, the name Passover. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Watch verse 14. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. It's going to be a memorial because some things are worth remembering and some things are worth celebrating. And certainly freedom is one of those things. Now, you know the story. They did exactly as they were told. They wore the right attire. They all put on their sandals. They prepared the lamb or the goat the way they were instructed. 
And that night the angel of death came into Egypt and struck down the firstborn in every household again, even the animals. That night God's people were set free. That night God's nation was born. That sparked a week-long celebration, a memorial, a celebration that is at the beginning of their calendar year. To start the year off with celebration because God is true to his word and it is God who sets us free. They call it Passover. Think about it. For 1,400 years, devout Jewish families, homes, have been celebrating Passover because they were instructed to. We just read it. For 1,400 years, a nation who for centuries had no homeland but managed to retain their identity... For 1,400 years, they were looking back at a spotless lamb who set them free and birthed their nation. God was setting the stage for Jesus Christ. Back to Matthew 26. Passover in Jesus' day had been around for a very, very long time. The disciples had grown up in households that celebrated the Passover. This special week, once a year, at the beginning of their calendar year, was something very well known by Peter, James, and Matthew, and so on. Back to our story. Look at verse 26 of chapter 26. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread. The teacher has captured a teachable moment. Again, parents, that's why I caution you about bringing little kids into communion. Because it's very important that they understand what this represents. Jesus wanted to make sure his disciples understood. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when they had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I don't mean to disagree, teacher. But for 1,400 years, the bread has represented God's provision for our people when we left Egypt. No. Jesus is saying, now this bread, the bread of Passover, the bread of sacrifice, is about me. Then he took the cup, verse 27. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. Wait a minute. Correct me if I'm wrong, but for 1,400 years, the wine has represented the blood that our forefathers painted on the doorframe. Jesus says no. Now the blood and Passover is about me. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, For the forgiveness of sins. There it is. The blood of the Lamb in Exodus chapter 12 liberated God's people from their bondage in slavery. The blood of the spotless Lamb in Matthew 26 was poured out for many and liberates us from the bondage of sin. He goes on. Verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, I want you to think of something. 
On Friday night, the eve before the Passover Sabbath, as they were removing the broken, dead body of Jesus Christ, God's spotless lamb, the once and for all sacrifice, at that very moment before twilight, tens of thousands of households in Jerusalem were slaughtering their lamb for Passover. The two actions were simultaneous. What we're about to do looks back to a sacrifice. One that began 3,500 years ago in Egypt that God then used to light the way for the one that matters now, his son. Today we celebrate a sacrifice that liberates us from bondage. That's why we're to remember. That's why this is so important. Now, here's how this works. In a moment, the band will start a song. I want you to just stay in your seat as long as you're comfortable. And as we sing together, when you're ready, you can move to the nearest station to your seat. Take a piece of bread and a little cup full of juice and return to your seat and have a seat. Once we're finished with that one song, we'll all take together. But before, let's pray. Father, today we remember the most significant sacrifice imaginable for the spotless, sinless Son of God bore in his body the sins of the entire world, past, present, and future. Indeed, your Son Jesus was the suffering servant of Isaiah 55 and 56. He bore in his body our transgressions, and somehow it pleased you, our God, to crush him. That is why we celebrate. I thank you for the broken body of your son Jesus. I thank you for his shed blood, for that is what makes us free. And I pray it because of him and in his name. Amen. While the band plays, when you're ready, just ease to the table and return to your seat.
Christianity is the only world religion that teaches 
Salvation in spite of me. Every other world faith teaches you get it together and maybe you'll find comfort and reconciliation with God. Not ours. Christianity says plainly, look around. Isn't it obvious that something's wrong with us? Isn't it obvious that mankind is broken to his core? Isn't it obvious after centuries of trying to develop the planet and civilize culture that we're as broken today as we've ever been? Isn't it obvious that if we are to find salvation, it's going to come from outside of us, not within us? That was the message of Jesus Christ, and that's what this represents. Jesus said, whenever you eat it, remember my sacrifice. We read it a moment ago. Similarly, Jesus took the cup, said, this now represents my blood, the blood of the new covenant. Whenever you drink it, remember me.
Indeed, Father, you are the only one who can change us. God, only you know we cannot change ourselves. Today we celebrate the sacrifice on our behalf that changes us from the inside out. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Make it a fantastic week. I will see you next time.